Father, we thank you this morning for your word and pray, Lord, that as we delve into this subject of baptism, Father, that you would guide our minds and our hearts, that we would seek to honor you and to obey you and to serve you in the way that you have told us that we are to serve you, Lord. So we ask your blessing upon this time in your word today, in Christ's holy name, amen. As we are today going to be looking at the subject of baptism, my uh, sermon methods are going to be a little bit different today. I'm not going to preach exactly expository today. But we're going to be looking at at the topic of baptism. And because of that, we're going to be looking at a few different verses of Scripture. But I'd like for us to start off this morning... In 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, and because I am preaching this morning, uh, technology is having problems. Anytime I'm here, we're going to have technical problems. But uh, <laughs> thank you, Brother Dan. We're, we're in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10. Today, As you all are all taking uh, good notes, I want to give you four major um, reasons why as believers, as children of God, we ought to be baptized. And those four areas are, number one, our baptism is symbolic of our identity in Christ. Number two, Our baptism is symbolic of our union in Christ. Number three, our baptism is symbolic of our cleansing of our sins that we receive from the Lord. And then lastly, fourthly, our baptism is an expression of our profession of our faith. So we're going to hang this sermon today on four words. Identity. Union, cleansing, and profession. First of all, then, our our baptism symbolizes our identity with God. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, call to mind here that Paul is writing to the church of Corinth because he wants to remind them of who they are in Christ their identity in Christ, and what they ought to look like as believers and how they ought to be living. And he's writing to the church at Corinth because there's, there's a concern there that they are not living up to the principles of the Word of God. So he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all of our fathers were under the cloud, and they passed through the sea. Now he's referring to the Old Testament believers, the nation of Israel, and he's reminding them that God was guiding the children of Israel. And it was made evidence by the Lord guiding them in the daytime by the cloud that they were to follow, and at night also by the pillar of fire that they were to follow. 
He's talking to them about being followers of God. As he says also to us Christians in verse 25 that we're all, as it were, running in a race for the glory of God and we are to run in such a way that we may obtain the prize. Even so, the children of Israel were being guided by the hand of God. They were under the cloud and they passed through the Red Sea. You all remember when the children of Israel gloriously passed through the Red Sea and they crossed over onto dry ground? Look at verse 2. And all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. The interesting thing about this is they were baptized, but they probably didn't even get wet. You know? They went through on dry ground, and the the Scripture says here that they were baptized... Look at verse 2. They were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. You see here, back in the Old Covenant... The children of Israel were identified by their spiritual head, their spiritual leader, Moses. They were in solidarity with Moses. They were in unity with Moses. At least they were supposed to be in unity with Moses. And they were one with him. Moses was the boss under God. Moses was their head. And Moses was their leader. And oh, what a joy it must have been for the children of Israel to be led by this man of God. Because remember who they were subject to before the Lord raised up Moses to deliver them. They were subject to Pharaoh and his cruel tasks that he inflicted upon the Israelites and how he had burdened them with cruel and and harsh labor. But God had redeemed his people and he raised up Moses to be the head, the leader through which he would guide the children of Israel out of that horrible bondage. And now they were under the leadership, under the headship of Moses. And Paul says here that they were baptized into or unto Moses, what a great, great figurehead to be baptized into Moses. He was a, a, a glorious example. For the Scripture says that when, in Hebrews chapter 11, you don't have to take the time to turn there, but when Moses was <clears throat> old enough, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. He had all, every opportunity in the world at his hand by being raised in the royal court. But rather, instead of receiving all of these glorious amenities, he chose rather to be afflicted with the people of God, rather to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin that Egypt was offering to him. He chose to unite himself with the people of God. Because the scripture says also in Hebrews that he esteemed the reproach of Christ. In other words, he he would have rather been persecuted for the sake of Christ, the Messiah who was to come. He wanted to be faithful to, to him rather than to be faithful to the Egyptian court. So he chose to suffer affliction with the people of God. He saw that as greater riches than all of the treasures of Egypt because he looked to his reward, his eternal reward. You see, the children of Israel were united. They were baptized into or unto Moses. 
But we see also here that in verses 3 and 4, uh, the, the scripture tells us that they all ate of that same spiritual food and they all drank that same spiritual drink for they drank out of that spiritual rock that followed them and that rock was Moses? No, no. Now they were falling under the headship of Moses but in essence was they were following Christ because Christ was the one who was making provision for them. Yes, God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit was with the children of Israel and they were led out by the strength and the power of the almighty triune God. Now, Christian baptism in many ways is similar to what we have here. But we as believers are not baptized into the name of Moses, are we? But we are baptized according to Jesus' words in Matthew 28 that we are to go forth and we are to baptize how? In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The children of, the, the children of Israel under the Old Covenant, they found their identity in their leader Moses. And they were baptized into Moses in the cloud and the sea. But in the New Covenant, we are baptized. We, we identify, brothers and sisters. This is why we're baptized. Because we, we say to the church and to the world that now we are identifying with the one true triune God. And it is my desire to be baptized in the name of the Father and in the name of the Son and in the name of the Holy Spirit. I want to be identified with Him. That's the reason why we should desire Christian baptism. Now, in the New Testament, uh, baptism and belief were almost synonymous with one another. When somebody professed faith in Christ, they came to Christ, they were usually baptized very quickly. You know, back in that day, there was very little possibility of making a false profession because it wasn't a popular thing to believe in Jesus and and to get baptized. Because as soon as you believed... In Christ, you became an unbeliever. An unbeliever in all of the Greek gods. No longer did you believe in the gods of the pantheon. So as far as Rome was concerned, by your belief in Christ, you now have become an atheist according to Roman standards. Because you no longer identify with the gods of the pantheon, but now you are identifying with this triune God. So to become a Christian in, in, in Rome was to go against the grain. It was not popular, so you'd have to be out of your mind to profess Christ if you were not real in your relationship to Christ. So... Oftentimes, when someone believed, they were so zealous for the Lord that they desired to be be baptized. Very few false professions. No, because to believe in Christ was to place your life on the line. It meant everything. Now we do have in the New Testament, uh, in Acts chapter 8, it says there that uh, Simon the sorcerer believed, but 
his belief was a, was a false belief. It was a, it was a belief of convenience, you see. He made money through, through his sorcery. And when he saw the, the preaching of the, by the power of God, by, by Philip, and that multitudes were getting saved, he evidenced that his power was evidenced. And then Peter and John came down and they preached and they saw, he saw that by the laying on of hands, the power of God went forth. And he said, here's some money, Peter and John, I, I want to have this power. And they were rebuked. He was rebuked because his motives were not pure. You see, his faith was even though he, the Bible says he believed. He only believed with his head. He didn't believe with his heart. He had a belief of convenience, a belief that was going to hopefully line his pocketbooks. And Peter rebuked him. He said, "Your money perish with you." And Peter said, "Pray to God that God would deliver you from this." This poison, this, this bitterness, and you would come to true faith. So you see, as believers in Christ, we no longer identify with those gods that we formerly served, that way of life that we formerly, formerly served. Look with me quickly, if you will, to Hebrews chapter 3. Again, the writer to the Hebrews here is, is uh, encouraging the the, the Christians that he's writing to to be faithful with, to the Lord just as Paul did in our previous text in 1 Corinthians. So he says there in Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 1 Therefore holy brethren partakers of the heavenly calling you who are Christians in other words consider the apostle and the high priest of our confession Christ Jesus, who was faithful to Him. Christ was absolutely faithful to the Father. He submitted Himself to the Lord, and He came and He laid down His life as He was appointed. And then look what He says there in verse 2. Just as Moses was also faithful in His house. Here's a parallel again here between Moses and Christ. They were baptized into Moses in the sea and in the cloud. And now we have here that just as Moses was faithful over the whole house of Israel, Christ is even much more faithful than Moses was. Verse 3 says that the, the, that the glory of, of uh, Christ was greater than that of Moses. Look at verse 5. Moses was indeed faithful in all of his house as a servant, but, look at verse 6, but as Christ as a son over his own house. You see, when we, we are believers in Christ, we are a part of his house. We're part of his body. Again, we have our identity in the head of the house, if you will, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we have identified with him if we hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of our hope firm to the end. Moses displayed that faithfulness to God. He chose to believe God, to trust God. He, tr he chose uh, the, the glory of God and to be faithful to Christ rather than all of the riches of Egypt. Even so, the Lord Jesus Christ, as a greater son, was faithful over all of his house. And because we, brothers and sisters, upon faith in Christ, have decided to unite ourselves in this house in the house of Christ, and we are His sons, and we are His daughters, we find our identity. 
Today, today you know, uh, the word identity is in the news a lot, you know, uh, as to what we are. But we know that as believers, our identity is in the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's why we're baptized in His name. We want to identify with Him. We want the world to know that we have identified with the Father and with the Son and with the Holy Spirit. Secondly, baptism is a sign that portrays our uniting in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 6. Now again, Paul, after just spending the previous two and a half chapters about the glorious doctrine of salvation, now for the next three chapters, he moves on to our sanctification or our spiritual growth and how that now we're called, based on this this glorious life that we have in Christ, we're called to live how we call to live. Paul asks us that very question. Based on who we are in Christ and our glorious salvation, Paul says, as he begins a new subject, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? There were some in Rome that was actually teaching this. Oh, this, this liberty in Christ is so glorious. You know, God has forgiven us. Grace has been poured out. We can do anything we want to do because salvation is all based on the grace of God. And Paul says, is this a proper response to what God has done for you? He says, absolutely not. In very strong terms, certainly not. For how shall we who have died to sin live any longer in that? And now again, in the next few verses here, they're highly controversial verses. Uh, And some would say, listen to me carefully now, some would say that these next few verses are teaching that we're saved in our baptism. Now wait a minute. Paul has already dealt with the doctrine of salvation extensively in the previous two and a half chapters. Don't you think that he would have said something about Baptism, if it was absolutely essential to our salvation? No, I think what Paul is beginning to build on here in Romans chapter 6 in verses 3 and 4 was the prophecy of the proclamation actually of what John the Baptist preached. You know, John the Baptist came baptizing with water. But what did he say? And by the way, his words are recorded in all four Gospels. One would have been enough. But in all four Gospels, John the Baptist preached, I indeed baptize you with water, but he, the Christ who will come, he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, you see. And I believe Paul is teaching about what John the Baptist was preaching about concerning this baptism of the Holy Spirit. And we've already seen one place in Corinthians where the word baptism was used as a metaphor when there was not any water involved. 
And I think here in this text we see essentially the same thing here. That he's using this word as this word baptism as a metaphor for the all-encompassing work of the Holy Spirit. That He works in our lives when He renews our heart, when He gives new life to us and brings us into this spiritual union in Christ. That's where Paul is going now. So, so he says there in Romans chapter 6 and verse 3, Or do you not know that as many as of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death. Therefore we are buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so should we walk in newness of life. This is talking about the spiritual work of God, the work of God, and the work of regeneration. Really, brothers and sisters, how in the world could it mean anything other than that? You know, would, would we actually discern that by the waters of baptism, a person could be regenerated? If that was the case, then pastors, ministers, elders that would go forth in baptism, we would have the, the, the very uh, salvation would be in our hands. You want to be saved? Oh, well, Pastor Ron will save you. He'll dip you in water right now. You see? That's not what he's saying. He's saying this is a work of God. And then when we come to know the Lord Jesus Christ by putting our faith in Him, we unite. We become in union with Christ. A few Sundays ago, we looked at these verses about about our glorious union in Christ and, and how that union was planned by the Father and how that union was provided through the Lord Jesus Christ and how that the, 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 the aspects of the prophets of that union are realized when the Spirit of God applies them to our hearts and we believe and we this glorious union finds its perfect fulfillment upon belief in Christ. You see, that's what happens, you see. Uh, when we trust in Christ, we are united. Wow. We, we're in His house. We're in His body when we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Just as Christ died for our sins, when we trust in Christ, we die to sin. That sinful principle, that old nature that wants to do things contrary to the will of God, we died Christ died for us. We are united in His death. And our sins are buried. His promise is never to bring up our sins before us again. That our sins are canceled. They're done away with. He has removed our sins as far as the east is from the west. We are, we are buried with Him in baptism. And then we're raised up to newness of life. Christ could not be contained in the grave. We, we celebrated Easter a few weeks ago, remembering the facts that Christ defeated death for our sakes and He was raised again by the power of the Holy Spirit. Even so, when we are in Christ, we put our faith in Christ, we, we can say that we've, we've died to sin and we are now alive with Christ. That's what Paul is saying here to these Christians at Rome. Remember who you are. That we have 
By the Spirit of God, we have united with Christ into His death. And also, verse 4, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so, also, we should be walking in a newness of life. Just as Christ defeated death, rose from the grave, ascended to heaven, so we too, because we are in Christ, because we have this definite union in Christ, because we are members of His household. Glorious! Death hath no more dominion on us. We've been raised up with Christ by the same Spirit that raised up Christ. He's raised us up. And we have the hope of eternal life that we shall live with Him forever with a glorified body just as He has. So you see, now you say, well, Preacher, he, he does use the word baptism. Indeed, he does. So I think, in all probability, Paul had baptism in the back of his mind, although he uses it as a metaphor in this text. Because you who are contemplating baptism, baptism by immersion or dipping reflects this glorious truth that we have identified with Christ, that we are uniting with Christ, that we are in union with Christ. We are baptized, identity in Christ, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And we are, when we are immersed or we are dipped, that's symbolic of our dying with Christ, that, our, that we are united with Christ in His death. And then when we come up out of the water... It's symbolic of our new life in Christ, that we've risen again from the dead, spiritually. So, we are not only baptism is a sign of our identity in Christ, but it's also a sign of our being united with Him. And then thirdly, baptism is also symbolic of the believer's cleansing from sin that his sins are under remission, that they're no longer taken into account. Throughout the whole, practically the whole biblical narrative, we have that phrase that your sins may be washed away by the forgiveness of God. Now we see this this thought of this washing or this, excuse me, this purification in different areas. First of all, we see this cleansing or this purification in the purification rites that are done throughout the Old Testament. Water was used in the Old Testament to be symbolic and also literally of a cleansing or of a purifying. Water, and sometimes blood and water, was, was sprinkled upon persons that were unclean. Water was sprinkled or used uh, by bathing or dipping uh, the different aspects of the tent or the tabernacle. It was cleansed for the Lord. Also, the vessels in the temple were cleansed by the sprinkling of water. And also, the priest had to cleanse himself before he went about his priestly duties by being cleansed. And then, another aspect of this cleansing is portrayed in Jewish proselyte baptism. 
Of course, the sign of the covenant under the old covenant was was circumcision. But for those who desired to come into the fold of Israel after the males were circumcised, both the males and the, and the females, if you were a Gentile, you had to undergo what just we refer to as Jewish proselyte baptism. And in doing that, the, this individual who desired to unite themselves with the faith of Israel, to believe in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and hold the promises of the old covenant, they said, I am doing away with my former life. And they had to go into the baptismal pool and dip themselves completely and thoroughly to the point that not even the, the end of their little finger would stay dry. They had to immerse themselves in this baptismal pool, signifying that though they be Gentiles, they are doing away completely with that former manner of living, and they are giving themselves fully and truly to the faith of the Jewish people, symbolic in their complete cleansing and purification. Now when we enter the New Testament era... John the Baptist comes upon the scene. And John's baptism was, in all probability, aspects of both the purification rites and the Jewish proselyte baptism. John the Baptist came uh, baptizing with water, but preaching a baptism of repentance. He said, Behold, the kingdom of God is at hand. Make way the way of the Lord. Get your hearts ready. Turn from your sins. Come forth and be baptized in this water in order that you might cleanse your heart, that you might make yourself uh, pure before God because the Messiah is coming and we must embrace Him. Oh yes, yes, even you who, you, you who are a Jew do not think that you're good enough in yourself because you're children of Abraham. John said that, that God can raise up children of Abraham from these very rocks, but you too must prepare your hearts. You may must be in an attitude of repentance because of the Messiah is coming. Be baptized. Repent. Turn from your sin and believe upon the Messiah that was coming. Be ready. This was the promise of, of the throughout the old covenant that there would be one who would come to cleanse us, to wash away our sins. In Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 1, the scripture says that a fountain, depicting a, a, a glorious fountain of, of pure water, was going to be opened up to cleanse us from that sin. We sang about that fountain this morning. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins. That's the fountain, you see. The fountain that the Messiah would come and He would pour out His blood and that we would be cleansed. Also, we see this uh, graphically portrayed by the, the cleansing of water. Now, turn in your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. Ezekiel mentions the glories of the new covenant. Look in Ezekiel chapter 25 as we see this, this principle of the cleansing. This was the prophecy. In Ezekiel chapter 36 and verse 25, 
The Lord says, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your filthiness and from all of your idols. Now, is God going to clean up their souls by pouring water upon them? Is that going to make you, make, make you pure and holy? No, obviously this is figurative. That the Lord is going to cleanse you by His power. And then He says in verse 26, the glories of the Christ that was, would come and the benefits of the new covenant that He's talking about. And then I will give you a new heart. And I will put a new spirit within you. And I will take away that, that heart of stone, that, that heart of rebellion, that hard heart, that heart that is an insensitive to the things of God, that rebellious heart. I'm going to take that heart out of you. And I will put in you a heart of flesh, a heart that's soft and tender to the things of God, you see. And then he says in verse 27, And I will put my spirit within you, and I will cause you to walk in my statutes. Something that the sinner cannot do is please God and walk according to His principles. Sinner can't do that. But by the power of God, He says, I will put my spirit in you. I will take out that heart of stone. I'll put in a heart of flesh. And I'll so change your heart that the scales of your eyes will be taken away. And, the, and you will be able to see the Lord for who He is. And you will be able to love Him because of the work of my Spirit. The natural man does not see the glories of Christ. But the Spirit of God opens his heart, opens his mind to see the glory of Christ so that we can believe. And I will put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and you will do them. Now, let's fast forward over to Titus. We see this same glorious principle portrayed for us in the New Covenant as well. In Titus chapter 3 and verse 5, a very, a very familiar verse. Well, let's, let's read verse 4 for the context. But when the kindness and the love of God our Savior toward man appeared... It is not by works of righteousness which we have done. No, we can't keep the law to merit ourselves before God. We can't do anything to cause us to merit ourselves before God. But it is according to His mercy and His kindness. Why are we saved? Well, I have had a good day last week. No, we're saved because of the mercy and the kindness of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice what he says. How does that work? Well, it's through the washing and regeneration. You see, here's the promise that Ezekiel mentioned. It's, it, it comes about through the washing of regeneration. There it is. Now, when we are regenerated by the Spirit of God, what happens to us? Well, He, he causes us by the work of the Spirit to see our sinfulness. And He causes us to have our minds and hearts renewed and we receive the gift of faith so that we can believe, you see. That's the work of the Spirit of God. That He saved us by this war. And it's depicted again as what? As regeneration, as a washing, a cleansing away from our sin. That happens by getting in a... by doing what? By 
A little bit of water sprinkling to do the job. Oh, no. Oh, you need a whole lot of water uh, to be immersed in water to take care of this. And see how foolish the thought is. Banish the thought. It's by the regenerative work of the Spirit of God that He changes our hearts. That He renews our wills. By this cleansing of the regenerating power of the Spirit of God. And He says there, and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. Have you experienced that? If you have, say amen. amen. You know what I'm talking about. Amen. <laughs> we didn't bring it about, did we? No, we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. But because of His great mercy, wherein He loved us, he made, here's the word, He made us alive. He regenerated us. He caused us to be born again, born anew into a new life. And He raised us up from that death and He cleansed us. You know, that's what Jesus was talking about, I believe, when He was speaking to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He said, you must be born of the water and of the Spirit. I think He was talking about the same thing there. This work of regeneration, this cleansing that comes forth by, by God, by the Spirit of God, where He works in our hearts. He changes us. And causes us to live. And He cleanses us from all of our iniquity. Brothers and sisters, water baptism is a sign of that very act. When the water either is sprinkled upon us or poured upon us or we're immersed, uh, dipped in this water. It's a, it's a principle. It's a, it's a picture of the cleansing work of God that He's done in our hearts. That He's made us pure. That He's made us to stand before God with our sins done away with. Purified. Not just by water. Water pictures it. But we're cleansed. We're made pure by the blood of Christ, because His life was given to us as our glorious substitution. And then lastly, baptism is an outward expression of our profession, of who we are, and our identity with the people of God. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, Peter preaching on the day of of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 2, Peter said to those who were hearing that they were to repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, again here, (laughs) many people take this text and they mutilate this text. They say, see, there it is right there that in order to be saved, you must be baptized before your sins can be remissed, to be done away with. What Peter is preaching here, he is preaching based upon a summary of what needed to be done. 
Because as I mentioned earlier to you, to repent and believe the gospel, I'm in Acts 2.38, to repent and believe the gospel and to be baptized in the New Testament period was essentially all parts of one event. And we don't see that this way, you see. So he's not saying here by any stretch of the matter that baptism is essential in order for you to be saved. Now, we know this because... Why do we know this? Because the whole rest of the Word of God does not teach that. That we are saved through baptism. If that was the case, then Peter must have forgotten these truths when he was uh, when they were preaching again in Acts chapter 3. And verse 19, what does he say? Look at that. Repent therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Not a word there about baptism. Repent and be converted. Believe the gospel. Believe the good news. Then you can have your sins blotted out. And by the way, he says the, the same thing. Um, over in Acts... Oh, I believe I have left that out. Uh, missed that verse. Let me see if I can find it. When uh, Paul was giving his address before Agrippa, yes, here it is. He said to uh, uh, him in verse uh, 20, but it was declared first to those in Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout all the region of Judea and then to, to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God. And again, over and over, we could look at dozens of instances. In order to be saved, you must repent and believe the gospel, accept the good news and be born again. And then... Here's the pattern. Here's the New Testament pattern. Upon your belief, upon your profession, what? Follow the Lord in baptism. And now let's look at Acts chapter 8. This is a very interesting event. In Acts chapter 8, the Lord had sent Philip down to Samaria to preach the gospel. And multitudes and multitudes of people were being saved. But in the midst of that revival, the Spirit of God came upon Philip and he said, Philip, I want you to go south of Jerusalem towards Gaza. There's someone down there that you have an appointment with. So Philip was obedient to the Lord and as he went down there, he saw this man from North Africa, Ethiopia, a eunuch. He was a God-fearing person and he was sitting in his chariot and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And Philip said to him, Do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch said, How can I unless I have one to show me? And the scripture says there, glorious, glorious thing that happened, that Philip took Isaiah 53 and he preached Christ to him from Isaiah 53. Well, the, the, the eunuch believed the gospel and he was gloriously saved. And then we read on in Acts chapter 8 
In verse 36, the, the eunuch is so excited, you know. Uh, I hope many of us can remember the excitement. Some of us can remember the, the great excitement that we have when, when we first believed. And he, no doubt, had, had heard of people believing. And he knew that as soon as they believed, they professed their faith in baptism. So here they are. They're going along. As they went down the road, well, according to the providence of God, they came near some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What hinders me from being baptized? That was his desire. I'm a new creation in Christ. I have believed now. Here's water. I'm ready. I want to profess my faith. Desire this. It was his desire. And then Philip said to him, Here's a condition, folks, so clear. If you believe with all of your heart, you may. If you believe the gospel with all of your heart. And he answered and said to him, Here's his profession. I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He believed. He trusted and because of that belief, he made his profession known by uniting with Christ in baptism. Now, let's, flip it. let's look at one other instance. Let's look at Acts chapter 18. You know, I mentioned to you earlier that in Rome to believe the gospel often meant that you were putting your very life on the line. Well, we see a difficulty occurring here. In Acts chapter 18, Paul is in Corinth and he's preaching the gospel in the synagogue. And Jews and Gentiles were coming into the synagogue. But by and large, the Jewish leaders opposed the preaching of Paul. They blasphemed God and they refused to have Paul preach in the synagogue and he was thrown out. But in the province of God, there was a man by the name of Justice who was a worshiper of God whose house was next door to the synagogue. So they say, okay, we, we can't have this teaching in the synagogue. We'll go next door. We'll go to Justice's house. And there Paul taught the Word of God. Well, an interesting thing happens here. Lo and behold, there was a man, verse 8, by the name of Crispus, who was the, was the ruler of the synagogue. And he believed on the Lord with all of his household. Can you imagine that? The very ruler was so excited about the things of God, he went next door to Justice's house, believed in the Lord. Oh boy, I bet he lost his job over that, wouldn't you imagine? <laughs> I no longer have the job in the synagogue. I'm going to have to find new work. That's okay. I'll do whatever I can because Christ is more important to me than anything in this world. So he believed on the Lord with all of his household and many of the Corinthians also believed. And what happened after they believed? They were baptized as well. They wanted to make their profession known as to who they were. They wanted to be baptized. And by the way, Crispus was baptized by the Apostle Paul personally. We find that out in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 14. So, baptism is indicative of our knowing Christ. It exemplifies, it portrays our profession. Because I say to the world and I say to God's covenant people, I'm His now. 
I'm His. Acts chapter uh, 3 tells us that they that received His word gladly, then they sought to be baptized. And they were a part of the fellowship of the church. They enjoyed the apostles' teaching. They enjoyed uh, the fellowship with one another, the communion with one another. They enjoyed the breaking of bread, the Lord's table with one another. You see, they, they said, no longer am I in this world. I have aligned with Christ. I've been baptized and now I'm living in this church with the community of God. And that was their profession. Again, wow. In New Testament days, oftentimes to make a profession of faith and to be baptized... You could have be putting your life on the line. And that's the way it is today in many Muslim countries. You believe in Christ, you may receive death because of your belief. We thought we we looked here at about the faith of this man from Africa in Acts, the Ethiopian eunuch. There's another story about a young lady by the name of Perpetua who also lived in northern Africa, which during the third century was also part of the Roman Empire. She was a young lady, very wealthy lady, a noble woman of 22 years old, recently married, and now with an infant child. But she had become a a Christian And she was in catechumen classes preparing to be baptized. Her and four other people from her household were preparing to be baptized. One was her personal slave by the name of Felicitas, who, by the way, was also pregnant at the time. There was a problem, though, politically and nationally for these five people to be baptized because the emperor on the throne was Septimius and he had a great hatred for Christians. It was his belief that the demise of Rome was coming about because of these Christians. And one way that they could identify one who was truly a Christian was that they got word that such and such a person was baptized. You see, that was a, that was a solidifying factor. If that person went through with baptism, then they are undeniably announcing that they have identified with and are union with the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord. Ah, but there's no Lord but Caesar. Septimius cried. He saw them as an adversary. So, here she is, getting ready to be baptized, to identify with her profession. What did she do? Well, she unquestionably was baptized. And after her baptism, she was thrown, along with the other four members, she was thrown, they were thrown into prison. And her father, who was very wealthy, went to the prison day in and day out and tried to talk to her and tried to get her to reason. Don't you realize what you're giving up? Your child is going to be without a mother. Look look what all that you have. You have wealth to live with. You're throwing away your whole life. Simply, all you have to do, Perpetua, is to recant of these foolish beliefs 
in Christ and offer the sacrifice that Rome requires you to offer and you can walk out of this prison a free woman. And there was a vase sitting inside of Perpetua's prison cell and she says, Father, do you see this vase? Can you call this object anything other than a vase? And he said, no. And she said, even so, I am a Christian. And I cannot be called by any other name than of Christ, you see. We identify with Christ in our baptism. We are called Christians after Christ. We are baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So she tried to encourage her father, even though he kept coming back and back and back, offering bribes. At one point, he got her uh, transferred to a uh, lesser, filthy, degrading place in the prison where she could nurse her child. And on and on, he would come to her, please turn from this. But she said, no. She said, no. I'm a Christian. And she said to her father, trying to console her father, she said, it will happen in the prisoner's docks as God wills. For you may be sure that we are not left to ourselves, but we are left to God and His power. The day of judgment came, and she was ordered that, along with all those that were believers in Christ, that they would suffer death at the hands of wild beasts. And a wild heifer was let loose in the stadium. And the heifer was mauling these dear Christians. At one point, the heifer ran into Perpetua and knocked her up into the air. And she came down, composed herself, straightened her tunic that was ripped, and went over to see if she could minister to Felicitas her slave, in her time of need. While they were battered and torn by the heifer, soon they let a leopard loose in the stadium. And the the leopard ripped and tore them, and the blood flowed freely from these five Christians. But death did not come, and the crowd was impatient. Not only did they desire to see the brutal torture of these people, but now the blood wasn't enough. They wanted death. And they cried out, Death! Death! To the Christians. So they were all lined up and slain by the sword. They had witnessed their profession. And knowing what they knew, They went forth with that desire to be faithful to Christ no matter what. They, like Moses, they esteemed the riches and the glory of heaven far greater than anything on this earth. Do you desire to unite with Christ? Or have you united with Christ? Have you? Have you really? Maybe your parents don't know. Maybe you're an adult here and you're asking yourself, have I really, 
Am I united with Christ? Am I in this union with Christ? Am I in Christ? In His death? In His burial? In His resurrection? You see? I know that my sins have been cleansed and have been washed away. And I know without any question or doubt, I want to profess my faith. Well, there's water around us. And if you've done this, and if you've believed in Christ with all of your heart, then nothing hinders you. You should seek the Lord in baptism. It's the first step of your obedience to honor Christ by this profession. That I am in Him and I will live with Him and I want to portray that before my covenant church family and before the world that I'm His. And therefore, according to the writing of the, of the writer to the Hebrews, he said, therefore, let us hold fast the profession that we maintain, the profession of the confession of our hope without wavering, for he that is, has promised us, he's the faithful one. So we throw our whole lot in with him. We desire to follow him honor Him because we've been raised from death unto life. Father, as we come before You today, we thank You for Your Holy Word. And I pray today, Lord, that You will work in the hearts of each one that's here. May we examine our hearts before You, Lord. And pray, Father, that if there's anyone here today that has not repented of their sins and is trusting in Christ alone for their salvation, that You would awake them from their sleep of death and by Your Spirit help them to understand this good news and flee to Christ, run to Him for their salvation. And then, Lord, if there's those here today who truly know You, truly love You, truly want to follow You, I pray, Lord, that You'd give them the grace and the strength and the desire based on a desire to be obedient to You and for the joy that You've placed before them that they would seek to follow You and to honor You by being baptized in Your holy name. For it's in Your name that we pray. Amen.